This morning's sermon text is Psalm 49. To the choir master, a psalm of the sons of Korah. Hear this, all peoples. Give ear, all inhabitants of the world, both low and high, rich and poor together. My mouth shall speak wisdom. The meditation of my heart shall be understanding. I will incline my ear to a proverb. I will solve my riddle to the music of the lyre. Why should I fear in times of trouble when the iniquity of those who cheat me surrounds me? those who trust in their wealth and boast of the abundance of their riches. Truly, no man can ransom another or give to God the price of his life. For the ransom of their life is costly and can never suffice, that he should live on forever and never see the pit. For he sees that even the wise die, the fool and the stupid alike must perish and leave their wealth to others. Their graves are their homes forever, their dwelling places to all generations, though they called lands by their own names. Man in his pomp will not remain. He is like the beasts that perish. This is the path of those who have foolish confidence. Yet after them, people approve of their boasts. Selah. Like sheep, they are appointed for Sheol. Death shall be their shepherd, and the upright shall rule over them in the morning. Their form shall be consumed in Sheol with no place to dwell. But God will ransom my soul from the power of Sheol, for he will receive me. Selah. Be not afraid when a man becomes rich, when the glory of his house increases. For when he dies, he will carry nothing away. His glory will not go down after him. For though while he lives, he counts himself blessed, and though you get praise when you do well for yourself, his soul will go to the generations of his fathers, who will never again see light. Man in his pomp, yet without understanding, is like the beasts that perish." Well, as Mark, Philip, and I have been preaching through the Psalms of the Sons of Korah, we've argued that there's a discernible order to this unit, Psalm 42 to 49. Early on, these Psalms capture the bewilderment and despondency of those times in the valley. But then later on, we, we see glimpses of glory on the mountaintop. Last week, we were anchored in the hope of the city of God, of God in Zion being our fortress. And from the clarity of that peak, the psalmist now offers wisdom to the entire world. He began with a downcast spirit, and now he offers confident wisdom. He's preaching to us. This is the kind of instruction you would hear from the temple. In Jerusalem, or actually this would be sung in worship. You notice there in verse 4 that what he has to say is set to music on the lyre. So God's word is not staid or irrelevant. It's beautiful and it comes with authority, meaning there's, there's no question of its relevance to your life. It's applicable. It's just a matter of giving it your ear and getting it into your heart because if you don't, it could cost you your life. The stakes are high for being a fool. It leads to a hopeless death. And the psalmist would spare you that. In fact, he spends the first four verses just heeding you to listen. So first, we have the call to listen. You see that in verses 1 through 4. And then the riddle posed. He's going to have a riddle for us. Verses 5 through 6. And then the ransom demanded, verses 7 through 12, and finally the resurrection promised. 
verses 13 to 20. So first, this call to listen up. I was at um, um, one of my son's basketball games, Wyatt, right here, uh, earlier this spring over at Wake Tech. We won, and everybody just hung out on the court afterwards, probably several hundred people. I don't know. You, you can imagine how, how loud it was in there in that gym. At one point, over the din, shot out a clear, bellowing voice. Can I please have your attention? Whole place went dead quiet. We all looked way over there on the other side of the gym at the exit. It was a police officer and four others. And he was holding a young boy in the air. And he said, whose child is this? You're laughing. It was Joshua. Yeah. Yeah. Dad of the year right here. I, whole place stayed quiet. I just dropped my head. Scampered over there. The kids later told me they were embarrassed by my awkward dad run. You know, it's just, you know. When you turn 45, I don't know, something happens. You just look weird when you run. But uh, grabbed Joshua. I, I hugged those officers. I thanked them for their service. They said he was on his way out to the parking lot. Whew. What's my point? Well, when five armed officers are calling for your attention, you wouldn't dare ignore them. Here we have the worship leader of Israel speaking the very words of God. He says, hear this, all peoples, give ear, all inhabitants of the world. So what he has to say must be weighty because he summons the entire earth to listen. No one is excluded. Everyone needs to hear what he has to say. All Israel and all Gentiles, both low and high, rich and poor together. So those social and economic categories, they may have standing here on earth, but not before God. Both the ruler and the pauper are called together to hear these words. The extreme ends of the social ladder and everyone in between. W.S. Plummer, Bible scholar of the 19th century said this, God's word nowhere denies that men's relations to each other are different, but their relations to God are all so far the same that they are all his servants, alike bound to hear and obey his word, alike accountable to him, liable at any moment to be summoned to his bar and to be judged in righteousness by him. Let all flesh give ear to the word of the Lord. That's what this is. This is these are not the musings of Joe Schmo in USA Today. No, the, these words are used in, in, in the wisdom literature. Wisdom and understanding that those words should jump off the page. These are the kind and gracious words of God written by a man inspired by God to give us wisdom and understanding. That, that means insight, spiritual discernment, the skill to live well in a fallen world. Well, that's why he demands your ear. We desperately need to hear the wisdom he offers. So having gained our attention, he presents his riddle. He poses his question. And it's a question that touches on our fears and our desires, our money, the wickedness of man and the justice of God. So let's, let's look at this question, this riddle. Verse 5, why should I fear in times of trouble when the iniquity of those who cheat me surrounds me? 
those who trust in their wealth and boast of the abundance of their riches. So that's the specific case he wants to ponder. He's saying, when you, the people of God, are surrounded by wealthy people who cheat you out of your money and property, and you feel intimidated and confounded, let me tell you why you shouldn't be afraid. That's what he's setting up to answer. But, but first, I want to think a little deeper on this, this fear in this situation. Because, you know, maybe you're not being cheated by anybody right now. But there's still an underlying question here that, that's, that's really common to all of us. Why do the righteous suffer, but the wicked seem to be doing just fine? You can see how disorienting that would be. I'm suffering at the hands of deceitful men. Has God abandoned me? You look at all their riches. Will I be left destitute? Is God just? How should we think about the inequalities of life? People have always been troubled by this. Asaph in Psalm 73, he writes about being envious of the wicked And their prosperity. He says, for they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. He writes, behold, these are the wicked always at ease. They increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. He's asking, is the godly life actually worth it? The unbelieving world, they they seem to be doing just fine. Meanwhile, I'm I'm trying my hardest to honor the Lord with my life. But life just feels so hard. The problem is only compounded when the wealthy are actually robbing you. He says in verse 5, when the iniquity of those who cheat me surrounds me. So that their sins are evident everywhere. It's like you're inhabiting a whole world of corruption. And their crimes seem to have no penalty. Would that make you afraid? It's like living in Chicago in the times of, of Al Capone. You know, if you crossed him, your life was at risk. And you had no recourse from the police or from the courts. Maybe some of your workplaces have felt like that over the years. In times of trouble, when your boss and his boss and his boss above him, they're circumventing the law, they're piling up cash unethically, all on the backs of their employees, they, they, maybe they felt invincible. Maybe your life wasn't on the line, but your livelihood was. And your conscience definitely was. Wouldn't you feel surrounded by iniquity and afraid and intimidated? Maybe even questioning the justice of God. Well, again, the question, why should I fear in times of trouble like this? So you can imagine all kinds of earthly responses. What could you do? Well, you could sinfully take vengeance on your superiors. Some people have done that. Or you might decide to be the whistleblower and you contact the authorities. Or you might decide to get really involved in a political group whose goal is to overhaul the entire government system to eliminate all the inequities of society. Now that might sound like a stretch, but it's been done before. Entire countries have been swept up in such movements. So there's all kinds of earthly wisdom we might bring forward to solve this riddle. 
Maybe you don't feel cheated by the wicked wealthy. Maybe you just feel cheated by life. Why did she get the promotion? I've been working my tail off here, but, but she gets rewarded. Or you struggle with coveting the ease with which some other people seem to live. You know, they get to go out to eat whenever they want. I'm just struggling to, to pay the summertime electric bill. Why didn't I get to take my kids to Disney World? Why, why did I move to Raleigh when, when housing prices are soaring, but, but they, they came here years ago and they did just fine. Housing prices were within reach. It just eats you up inside. You, you covet their possessions, their station in life, the comfort and ease with which they seem to live, and you say, what gives? Friends, friends, you're on the, on the edge of a dangerous precipice. There are things happening in your heart that will ruin your life if not addressed. So I'd say let God meet with you. Let the word of God do its work in you. Authors Tim and Kathy Keller, they wrote a simple prayer reflecting on this psalm. They write, Lord, I often catch myself imagining how much greater life would be if I had more. I also quietly boast in my heart when I see myself able to afford certain goods and inhabit certain places. Save my heart from such shallowness and foolishness. That's a good prayer. It's a good prayer. Again, we could propose all kinds of earthly temporal solutions to address this riddle, but how does the psalmist answer? Verse 7, truly no man can ransom another or give to God the price of his life. For the ransom of their life is costly and can never suffice that he should live on forever and never see the pit. For he sees that even the wise die. The fool and the stupid alike must perish and leave their wealth to others. So, so the psalmist, he is giving us wisdom from above, not from below. He's answering your question, but maybe not in the way you expect it. This is why we believe in the doctrine of the sufficiency of Scripture. God's word is sufficient in giving you a framework to understand every aspect of your life. I'm not saying the Bible can teach you calculus. It's not exhaustive in that way. But God, who is exhaustive in his knowledge, has chosen the words of Scripture to emphasize what we should emphasize in our lives. What he gives priority to, we should as well. So here the psalmist is drawing our attention to eternal spiritual realities. Namely, we are accountable to God for our lives. No man can give to God the price of his life. Everyone has come up short. And a payment must be rendered, a ransom. But that ransom is exorbitant. So let's look at the ransom now. He uses that word three times in the psalm. Why is a ransom necessary? Truly no man can ransom another or give to God the price of his life. So the ransom is owed to God. We are in debt to God. And we all know this intuitively. It's written on our hearts. Our consciences bear witness. We are accountable to God for the way we've lived. Paul writes, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. He says the wages of sin is death. The Puritans used to say in Adam's fall, we sinned all. 
That's what we inherited from Adam. The curse of sin, the sin nature, and sin's penalty, which is death. If we want to escape death and gain eternal life, a ransom must be paid to God. But payment for your life is costly. In fact, the psalmist says no ransom would ever be sufficient to keep you from this place he calls the pit. Death can't be bribed. You you can't ransom your way out of it. No one can buy God's favor. Your wealth can't save you. But but that's the nature of sin, right? It's, It's irrational and deceptive. And sin, it goes deep. You look at verse six, they trust in their wealth and boast of the abundance of their riches. So something is happening in the heart. It's not really about the money. Money in and of itself is not evil. It's the love of money. That's the problem. We have disordered desires. Our our desire for money can, can supersede all else. It's revealed in our boasts. You you boast in what you trust in. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks, Jesus said. Now, now money well earned and wisely saved, that's a good thing. Scripture commends that. Wealth brings stability to life. When you can pay your bills, that's a good thing. When you can provide for the needs of your family, that's a good thing. When you steward a business well so that it prospers and grows, that's a good thing. But trusting in your wealth, finding your confidence in it, boasting about it, you can very easily begin to think, look look at what I've done for myself. I am blessed indeed. Look at how people approve of me. I must be so good and so competent. I have been blessed by God. You see, you can just dress it up with some spiritual language there. The rich man, the rich woman can delude themselves in their supposed self-sufficiency. And the psalmist says, this is the path of those who have foolish confidence. It's verse 13. Jesus said, only with difficulty will a Rich person entered the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. You think of the, uh, the parable of the rich fool in Luke 12. His land did really well. He thought to himself, what should I do? I've got nowhere to store my crops. Ah, I know what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns. I'm going to build bigger ones. And I will say to my soul, soul, you you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? The ransom for his life was suddenly demanded, and and, and all his grain and all his goods that he he very clearly trusted in, they, they could do nothing for him. The same is true for everyone. The psalmist continues to reason out his riddle and it it gets even starker. Verse 10, even the wise die. If you're a smart man with money or a fool with money, you'll both die. Everyone loses everything in death. You can't pay my ransom and I can't pay 
yours. Now Moses, he did write in the law uh, that a ransom could be paid in some cases to commute a death sentence, but death with a capital D, that, that can never be ransomed. The rich and powerful may seem invincible, whether they threaten us or, or we're tempted to covet them. They're not. We shouldn't be intimidated by them. Because verse 12, man and his pomp will not remain. He is like the beasts that perish. The psalmist actually says that twice. I think that's the proverb he's meditating on. He's just unpacking it throughout the psalm. Man is proud and he will die like any animal. He owes a debt he can never repay because everyone loses everything in death. Now, how could this possibly be good news? Well, this is part of the sharp edges of the Bible that we might be tempted to soften. We live in a culture that has done this masterfully. There's a book I'd highly recommend to you. It's by Matthew McCullough. It's called Remember Death. And he says, we have suppressed the truth about death more than any other time and place in history. We've sanitized it. We've medicalized it. We've pushed it to the margins. Nothing to see here. We distract ourselves from it and we soothe ourselves with our riches. Well, friends, we need more death awareness, not death suppression. Look at how much this passage talks about it. We We have an entire psalm about death. There is a solemn warning here that we ignore to our peril. McCullough writes, if death is not a problem, Jesus won't be much of a solution. That's true, isn't it? Jesus just becomes a nice add-on to our otherwise very comfortable life. The promises about his coming kingdom and the new heavens and the new earth, they won't feel very precious to us. They'll feel detached and abstract, just just not very relevant to the life I'm living. I would be negligent here to not acknowledge that we as Americans are a very wealthy people. We're also a very generous people as well. But we dare not let this passage slip by without pondering the possibility, have I brought someone into a time of trouble by cheating them? Am I part of the oppressive rich? If you employ others, have you defrauded them to line your own pockets? Is there any dishonesty in your business dealings? Brother, sister, make it right. Make it right. Listen to James. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. It wasn't because they had money. It's because of what they did with it. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. There is a coming morning, verse 14, when the tables will be turned. All will be revealed in the light of day. Jesus said, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light. And what you have whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetops. What hope do do any of us have? The specter of death is coming for all of us. Who is going to pay 
the ransom. Truly no man can ransom another except the Son of Man who came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And with the ransom paid, resurrection follows. If you look at the last verse of Psalm 48, you'll see a precious bridge to Psalm 49. It says, our God forever and ever, he will guide us forever. Another way to translate that, he will guide us beyond death. How will he do that? Psalm 49 answers, he will ransom my soul from the power of Sheol. In verse 7, God was the one to whom the price was due. In verse 15, God pays the ransom himself. But God, two of the most beautiful words in all of Scripture, will ransom my soul from the power of Sheol. But how exactly? John tells us in Revelation, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. Jesus willingly spilled his blood and died to redeem you from the clutches of death, and, and me as well. Praise God. This is what he's done for us. That means you can walk away from fear and coveting. Its power is broken. In Christ, you are so well provided for. You are rich. You have an everlasting inheritance. You remember God told the Levites, you won't have any land, but I myself will provide for you. I will be your inheritance. Moses tells the people, the eternal God is your dwelling place and underneath are the everlasting arms. If you are in Christ, you have been ransomed from the power of Sheol. You have been redeemed from that place of the dead. You know, sometimes in the Old Testament, Sheol just, is just synonymous for the grave. That, that, and we're all going to go to the grave. But here, it's not just the grave. It's the place of eternal destruction for the wicked. It's a place where their form shall be consumed with no place to dwell. There's no refuge. There's no fortress. There's no city. It's a place where death shall be their shepherd. What a dreadful image. It's a place where they never again see light. That's verse 19. That's the path for those who have foolish confidence. But it's not the only path. Yes, death comes to us all, but there's a path of death that has no hope and there's a path of death that does. You can die like the oblivious beasts or you can die with understanding. You can die trusting in your wealth or you can die trusting in God. Look at verse 15. Where is his trust? He will receive me. He trusts God to take him in. The Lord is my shepherd, not death. We may be regarded as sheep to be slaughtered, but it's for your sake that we are killed all the day long. For our faithfulness to God. But the wicked are like sheep appointed for Sheol. If you are in Christ, that is not your destination. Your form will not be consumed. Oh, you will die. 
But Paul wrote, for since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. He's not going to leave you behind. He will receive you. Even your body will be restored on that coming resurrection morning at the return of Christ. Friends, we have this hope. There is a coming king and a coming city on a coming morning when all wrongs will be made right and death shall be no more. This is the comforting wisdom that God offers his people who still live in a fallen world as we await that day. Let's take a few moments to reflect on these things and then I'll pray for us. Oh, Lord, we love you. You are our great conquering king. You have delivered us from our sin and the penalty of sin by taking that penalty upon yourself and then defeating it in your glorious resurrection. Would you help us, Lord, to live in light of what you've done, treasuring you above our wallets because you will have the final say. So we cling to you by faith and we ask for the strength to live in a way that honors you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.